You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. So thanks for connecting. I appreciate you taking the time out while you're over in, you're still in Kenya, are you? So I think from uh, from an academics point of view, uh, uh, I did my bachelor's in uh, film studies. And then uh, uh, post that I majored in, uh, uh, I did my MBA and I majored in forecasting and econometrics. Uh, after that, for almost about nine to 10 years, I was in the digital advertising business in India. So uh, in India, I've been a fairly recognized uh, digital business leaders in the agency world. My last stint was at Ogilvy and Mehta, where I was leading the national business for all things digital that used to happen in, over there. And uh, I just happened to be in this space uh, probably last year when, uh, so I was as of now just keeping news on it in the last year. But I think when I actively went into this trade, or maybe this entire cryptocurrency field was when demonetization struck India on 8th November on 2016. So I think uh, I was just having dinner at that point of time and it was 8 p.m. and I was just watching the news uh, on the television that point of time when the Prime Minister of India just told us that uh, these two big notes of 500 rupees and 1000 rupees are invalid from this moment on. So you only have 50 days to change it from the banks and uh, that was a day when I realized that uh, uh, the fiat money that I held in my pocket is practically paper. It does not hold value to its own. Unless uh, before that day, I was just reading a lot of stuff about Bitcoins. I think the first Bitcoin, the first person who actually introduced me to Bitcoin was in 2013. I was in Mumbai and I had a couple of suites over there. I was partying with and uh, they were wearing shirts with had the logo of Bitcoin. And I just asked them. Uh, as of now, like what exactly this? Because I've been a fairly uh, comic book geek when it comes to Marvel characters and uh, DC characters, but I could not resemble this B. And then they just told that, you know, this is something called a Bitcoin. And uh, we've just got a few of them. And would you like to have some? And I, I think at that point of time, it was almost hovering around $70, I was I'm not sure. It might be a little bit $100. But uh, he said uh, the next round of beers are on me. And... That's the first time I heard about Bitcoins. But for the next two years, I was just taking it passively. Maybe it was something which was more or less as a token between, uh, you know, a geeky community uh, because I would associate myself with that. But uh, I wouldn't see the practical real world applications of it until demonetization happened over here. I had four large uh, notes of 1000 rupees in my pocket and uh, it was 9th November 2016. Uh, I could see almost 500 people in the bank standing outside of the queue trying to change their currency so that, you know, they could get the new one in replace. Uh, but being, being a busy man over there, because I was also running a large agency setup, I did not have the time. And uh, accidentally, when I, just, when I was just nearing the bank, I got a money mule. And he said, you know what, if you give me 1000 bucks, I'll give you 800 bucks right now. So he would just short me 200 bucks at that point of time because, you know, uh, I'm paying for the time. Uh, And then all these things and the chain of events happened that when I came to realize that there was a big wedding at my home, uh, uh, a distant relative. And usually uh, weddings in India are a very uh, last year's big affair, so to speak. A lot of drama, a lot of people, uh, almost 500 people gathered in a banquet hall. And uh, a lot of cash is thrown across. It's a ritual and a custom over there. And apparently, uh, the wedding was scheduled to be two days after 8th of November. And uh, there was hardly any cash for us to operate on that. So I think it was a bigger, uh, uh, if I were to put it on a biggest level, I mean, uh, it was a breach of fundamental rights as far as I see. I mean, just one fine day, uh, one person gets up to the person that we voted in majority for. And he says, you know what, you can't use this money anymore. Because I'm going to get some black black uh, black uh, black markets done, or I'm going to get the black money back in from the Swiss bank's account, but it is not practically true. Yeah. And uh, the st- the stats just throw numbers. And the, for the next 50 days, almost 200 people, uh, elders and maybe midwives, they just died standing in the queues, waiting in the sun for almost 
eight or nine hours to get their new currency in place. And almost five billion uh, rupees of revenue was lost because of day-to-day businesses, and it just stripped off uh, the local unorganized markets and segments on which kindly on which India operates. For example, the vegetable vendors, or maybe the day-to-day uh, you know uh, rickshawalas over here who who do the trolleys. Sure. They were just stripped of their human rights, and they were only dependent on digital money. And the only thing that got benefited out of it was the largest. Uh, uh, uh you know mobile uh, money operator which is paytm in india right now and it just actually blew up on the phone so what i was doing online or most of us were doing that we were converting our rupees into digital money which was not a cryptocurrency but a token and it's the largest indian uh, wallet uh, at this point of time with more than 150 million download which is known as paytm and we were highly dependent on it for the next 50 days because we could not have cash in our pockets and the second biggest part was that socially it became a taboo to operate in cash anymore. I mean, the, the the whole fundamental principle of money got changed within 50 days. Yeah. And that is when, and that is, an eight number was the first time that I bought almost 10 bitcoins on my own. That let me see, let me. So I took it as an instrument to hedge myself against any kind of uh, government, you know, action that would be taken because I cannot see those or I cannot forecast those events. I really don't know what's happening in the parliament and what they are sitting to do with the people right now. Right. But I think if I could, because if I cannot trust my government, I cannot trust my bank, then who is it that I can trust to? Then the solution was obviously this, there is this network, there is blockchain. And then I went into too deep inside it. And then I understood the code. What do miners do? What do, what do, how are people rewarded with this thing? Uh, and then I also went on, uh, read, uh, kept on reading the books, for example, Digital Gold by Nathaniel Porter. I think this is one of the, uh, you know, uh, the best books that I've written, uh, the read over it. And uh, after that, I also came in, came across a kind of a certification as well because I kept. I think I was really interested in the code aspect of it, the tech aspect of it. How how does it really operate? So I got myself a certificate in uh, CBP, which is done by CryptoConsortium.org. And uh, after that, I think it may uh, uh, between between December till April 2017. Uh, uh, by that time, on my own because I I was I was. I mean, I wasn't a struggling man in the advertising field. So I put a lot of my money into cryptocurrency and started operating my own portfolio. And when I see the huge returns that I kept on doing on my own, by largely reading all those white papers and doing a lot of, uh, you know, active involvement in reading with developers on Slack or Telegram, that's how, and obviously on Twitter itself, itself uh, my portfolio grew almost 600% over a period of five months. And it, I was just amazed because for the last eight years, I was heavily invested in the so-called traditional instruments such as gold. I also own some uh, property in India. I also uh, was dealing with mutual funds, a big, very big portfolio, which is towards equity itself. Uh, and I have had a fair share of luck with stock trading at Indian equities in the National Stock Exchange, but it wasn't fruitful at all because ultimately you don't know what's, what's driving the price or what's driving the price down. So after doing a lot of do-it-yourself models, I think this was one where I could fairly feel empowered and not cheated by the system itself. Even though there is so much volatility in cryptocurrency world, but it's it's the market. I mean, so it's it it isn't the market that you know uh, fundamentally a big organization such as Reliance, for example, in India. I don't know what the hell will they do tomorrow. And there's a lot of insider trading that goes in India, which is not unchecked. There might be a lot of laws, but uh, they're not practiced. I mean, it is not enforced in India, uh, whatever be it in the area of finance. So here was this thing, which is blockchain. I mean, it was sort of an empowering position for me to, you know, venture into this field. I, because as far as I understand, I have seen returns at best at 27 to 30% year on year on combined portfolio. Even if I had to, even if I had to do a lot of basket of goods held together, this was the most, you know, kind of figure that I had achieved. And there was this figure. I mean, it, it worked on its own. So after I understood this, I started and then I uh, f- launched my own website, which is bitcoinvisor.com. And I started talking to a lot of my business, work friends, colleagues, family, and a lot of people became interested in this thing. So they interested some part of their money as well. So I do a lot of uh, education and training uh, with small sectors. For example, I just did a trial. I just did a, a workshop in terms of Bitcoin bootcamp uh, with a financial, small financial group because they're looking for alternate asset classes. They have a certain bunch of now high net worth individuals, NRIs, 
non-resident Indians, person of Indian origins who are sitting outside India, and their 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 risk appetite is huge. But they don't understand cryptocurrency or the or the math of it. But they would they have this large appetite of risk. They're willing to let go and lose this money. But why would they not play in this? So I think that's how. At this point of time, a lot of people who I uh, who who know me from the field itself, they have. Um, you know, put faith in my uh, my venture, and they have asked me to maintain their portfolio uh, because the, the only thing that they have asked me that uh, India being a very very price sensitive market, that please don't let go of my principal. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is the only share that. They, yeah, so I think we are fairly good on that. Uh, that's how I crept into it, and now almost I think I started recently started my newsletters on my website, uh, but I think. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm at this point of time. I'm doing as much savvy or my business as savvy as way you are positioned to be, because I'm clearly not trying to talk to the classes. I'm trying to talk to the masses, because I'm trying to be more or less in the field where I am, where I position myself as an educator. That what are the benefits or what are the demerits or merits of this thing? For example, how could this possibly? I've been into I've been into digital advertising business, so I know I've helped brands. A lot of Fortune 500 brands, you know, digitally transform their business, for example. And I see a lot of aspects uh, on this cryptocurrency area where maybe, uh, maybe a sector such as insurance, it can be helped by blockchain and its own token, for example. Yeah. I think or insurance maybe, is an, an insurance is one of the in in the so should we call it old world or the merge merging correct. of existing tech existing um, business structures with blockchain that seems to be one first it's one that seems it's it's um easily identifiable but also that industry does seem to be taking it up um there's other industries like the legal industry which is not taking it up to the same extent but which is clearly in i mean it has a bullseye on its back and you can see the application of blockchain which would just wipe out the the need for notaries and and Many of the legal services that exist today, but yeah, you're right. And in the insurance industry, it is one that um, many of the insurance companies are actually using now. Um, I saw just yeah. recently over in Australia, there was a number of insurance contracts done by, and I'd have to look it up again, but it was a large insurance company that were um, implementing this all on on on. I don't know if it was their internal blockchain and possibly even a centralized one, which isn't really a blockchain. It's just a it's just a database, but there's many people that are using Correct. this term terminology at the moment, <laughs> and and there's a danger in that, yeah. right? Because to me, it's like it's not a blockchain unless it's actually decentralized and immutable. Yeah. And but we're gonna we're gonna go through this phase, right, where there's gonna be a right. bunch of frauds and a bunch of people that I are using the market will itself evolve into when the customer starts asking itself from the provider that you know is it decentralized. Is it immutable? So I think, from an Indian standpoint, I still think we are almost seven, eight years away from that position. I mean, in certain world markets such as the Euro, US, Europe, maybe in Australia, people people might be nearing about in two to three years. But I would say in India, it will almost take eight to nine years, largely because uh, they themselves, majority of Indian population, is still trying to understand first of all what does how to learn English, and then and what I'm talking about is light years ahead, which is blockchain. Uh, because I just had a uh, quite a while back, I just had a debate on a on a you know advertising forum I was, and there was this big 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 face from the banking industry, and he was using a lot of blockchain terms, even though they were not decentralized or immutable, as you were saying. So he was kindly, and for him, Bitcoin is evil, and blockchain is purely God sent. So, because <laughs> well, because what it does give you, of course, if you have it as a centralized application, is it gives you complete transparency into um, client transactions. And so, if you're a if you're a government, that is, uh, you know, um, that's God sent stuff. That is, uh, you know, you can tax at source. You can. Um, you have complete power. In fact, you actually even have the power of um, removing people's assets and and securing them, if you know they do. Correct. You don't like them, or if uh, politically they oppose you, or anything of that nature. So it has a it has a an evil side to it. <clears throat> but again, that's not the that's not well. In my thinking, that's not the true blockchain because the true blockchain has to be immutable and decentralized, where the part right. of the, the the participants that are actually securing that network 
A, they don't know who you are, right? And B, they don't care who you are. And everybody goes into the system trusting nobody. And you're not, it's, it's not a trust system. It's a trustless system. Um, and, and the, you know, the question that is asked is, is the transaction valid or is it invalid? It doesn't matter whether it's legal, illegal, good, bad. That's not, it's just valid or invalid. Right. And that's very, very different to, you know, what a lot of the, the businesses that I'm looking at now and probably you've seen <clears throat> where they're using the terminology blockchain. But if you actually look at the underlying, all it is, is a, it's a glorified database. <coughs> so I've got a question. And, and one of the reasons that I wanted to, to get your insight into this, um, and you've, you've brought this up with respect to how you actually got involved in the space, which is that um, turning India into a cashless society. Now, I'll give you a quick bit of background. Every time, you know, I've, I've known about Bitcoin for um, probably six, seven years or something like that. Um, I wished I'd taken it more seriously. Anybody else had when I first looked at it, but nevertheless, so, and you know, the people that I've been um, engaging with in that space have largely been um, from, you know, the United States or Europe and certainly within the United States, Silicon Valley area, the, when, when I speak to them about something like India Stack, it's now coming on the radar. But I heard about this from a friend um, who runs a, um, a money management um, and research advisory business over in Cayman. And I heard it from him probably, shit, maybe I'm going to guess now about eight, nine months ago. Um, you know, India Stack and Adha and everything that they're doing there with the biometric databases and so on and so forth. And I'd never heard about it before, right? And so in the Western media, um, the what was taking place in India, nobody knew about it, which was mind-boggling to me because the, the scale of it is phenomenal, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's not small. And India is not a small... One billion people. It's a humongous, a humongous affair. And also to take a country which is or, or was predominantly a cash society is a is a feat i mean if you were to do it in britain australia the united states any of these developed economies turning people getting rid of cash people wouldn't have blinked an eye because most of them don't use it anyway right most of them are using debit cards credit cards various apps and so on and so forth so actually they're already in a in a digitized economy it wouldn't have been a difficult thing to actually move them onto um a fully digitized non-cash society. Um, but to do it in India was a completely different game plan. I mean, it was if you were to pick a country in the world that was going to be the most difficult to do it in, India would have been one of them. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting in itself. But it also, it made me realize why, um, because I found out about Adha and India Stack post the um, uh, Modi's, um, decision to take cash out of the economy and and it makes a lot more sense right he kind of had this plan that he's moving towards um, it wasn't just you know it was like okay let's get rid of cash but we actually have a solution once people offer that to actually get people into a digitized banking um, economy and so on and so forth so but again coming back when I speak to um, non-Indians if, if you will uh, many of them don't really have the deep knowledge about India stack or the applications, what is actually doing in the economy, what it's doing, what people are thinking about it, how it's being utilized, whether it's working, not working, all that kind of stuff. And I think, and certainly many of them dismiss it and they dismiss it from, you know, it could be a cultural bent of, Oh, you know, India's a backward country. You know, I'm sitting here in San Francisco our, the, you know, the digital world lives where we are. We are the kings. Those people don't know anything. And, and right. I think that's always, um, it's, it's, well, it's naive and it's a risk. But certainly in a, in a digital world where finally your, uh, your infrastructure um, is a, that allows you to do that is a different infrastructure. You know, you can sit there and 
Mumbai and, you know, the streets outside may have potholes in them. But if you've got right. high-speed internet, that's the only infrastructure that you need. It doesn't matter. That, Absolutely true. That, and, and so that's, right. that's a very different um, visually you're getting one visual picture, but the applications are different, and that's important. I think I would, a lot of people must. Usually, I would put India under the header of as an organized chaos. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's um, that's quite true. So, what what I'm interested in is where you've got Bitcoin, which has been this. Um, it's open source. It's um, uh, you know, immutable, decentralized, all this sort of stuff. And it has certainly of all of the blockchains out there, it has the most computing power that's being um, used to secure that network. Um, you know, Bitcoin is a hundred thousand times more hashing power than Ethereum, which is the next you know step down Sorry. the run. And Ethereum itself is probably a hundred thousand more than the next, you know, 10. So, sure. uh, and, and then when I look at, um, again, coming back to India stack, which, was set up by the government and they've managed to get this critical mass on board really in a, in a blink of an eye. That is incredibly powerful. What I'm interested to get your thoughts on is how, how do you see um, that or any application like that being utilized by a, a central, like a government or a um, <clears throat> any bureaucratic large organization? It could be Google, it could be Amazon, it could be any large organization, how do you see that competing with the, shall we call it the free market, which is the, the right. decentralized open source technologies, whether it be Bitcoin or any of the others, let's just park them in that bucket. Um, right. Have you got any thoughts as to, because you're living in that world where clearly you understanding and you're using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but you're also in India where you've, you've now had this, you've got the society, which is, moving rapidly towards a digital infrastructure. <clears throat> so I think it's a, a from, see, I would largely, being from a very strategic area, I would largely divide it into a pestle analysis, political, economic, social, technological, legal, and environmental issues. So let's see the political uh, scenario first. I think Modi is clearly on an agenda to get everyone on the banking radar. Largely because the unorganized, uneducated sector or the class of people in India, they never trusted banks. They would always stash their money inside their houses. Traditionally, all the wives or all the aunties at home would stash their monies inside the blouse. That's how the typically, uh, you know, the village scenario has been. They would never go to their banks because uh, it's cumbersome. Uh, for them, it's a lot of processes to open up a bank to avail services. But there are certain communities in India which largely operate on trust within a certain set of people in terms of lending and borrowing. So that's that's number one that he killed. Everyone has been moved to that's a forced inclusion from the government itself for getting into this. And at this point of time is also uh, providing some subsidies and soaps to get included. But, but the people that I have talked to who are at the bottom of the pyramid, I just happened to have a chat with them a few months back. Uh, the promises haven't been returned by the government as of now because there were some kind of, uh, you know, incentives if you had to open a bank account. The second thing was that until, until demonetization happened, the top six banks of India was sitting on our largest debt among all the developing countries as we speak. They were almost under 42,000 crores of debt so where could this money be brought into? It was largely from the people itself. Make the people put their own money into the system so that the banks get some sort of a healthy lease line. And further, it just decreases the interest rates so that he could buy another political candidature for 2019 itself. So, so I think it was a vicious system. Do you see that then as being a forced bailout of the banks? I certainly agree with it because Every every month, I have done a detailed article on this on one of my uh, uh, one of my opinion pages on the site, and I'll after this session probably I'll just mail it to you as well. Well, I have just 
done a step by step analysis as to what happened post demonetization and i am doing a fundamental analysis between the rupee and the bitcoin i'm not taking any sides for the bitcoin but i'm proving a case why is the rupee depreciating since the independence i mean in 1947 a rupee was as equal to a dollar and now that as we speak is almost like 64 or 65 years after that independence the amount of number of years of independence equal to the number of rupees per dollar so that's that's how fundamental decline has been and over the period of time banks have also not they are all of them are sitting in such large amounts of non performing assets that it's only the institutional lender or the borrower that they can to take take the money from because obviously large amount of money is being used by the brothers and sisters and the large business community who are very close to the modi and government so they would never take money from them so i think nobody notices because i think i've seen a lot of documentaries uh, a lot of films such as a big shot and they're talking about the us banking structure nobody has put a pin on the banks of india as of now because it's 1.3 billion people look about the stature of the kind stature of banks or the kind of respect that they hold i think this is from the political scenario economic scenario now the greatest chief economic or uh, i think when whenever modi came in uh, he just he just boosted him so that he could get his guy in and he could get the he appointed a new rbi governor which is our central bank reserve bank of india and rbi did not even have that mandate or the de, on the day of demonetization and they were just as shocked as were the indians and how could this happen for example how could the central bank not know that there is going to be a demonetization the second decision what they have done is so when they when they uh, made it illegal those to 500 and 1000 rupee notes they came up with a new note which was a worth rupees 2000 now until recently a week back they said we are we are stopping uh, any more printing of rupees 2000 notes that's enough for us now let's print more 200 rupee notes which is all together new currency now we need to understand then for example just as 1973 happened with bretton woods and xyz things rupee is back to the dollar it's one of our economy the rupee is back to the dollar we don't have any asset in place for example rbi is key rbi for example my central bank is printing money like anything right now so as to substitute the cashless economy that was created or the the kind of cash that is required in the market and people are still short of cash you could still go into the market right now and eight out of 10 atms are short of cash you would not get cash and what is the and the biggest part is there is a lot of capital controls that has just come up for example uh, just in recent cases if you had to deposit some amount of money in your bank right now in the bank slip there is a fine line that you would need to quote what is the reason for you to put this money in your own account i mean this is just this is just i mean i cannot just fathom what the government if if this is the if this is my hard earned money why is the why does the government want to know where is it come from why do i want to what do i intend to do with it it's my money yeah the second thing is you can't withdraw 2 lakh rupees amount of cash in a single day from your account that's another capital control for example if you are to give someone more than rupees 50000 rupees to someone via a bank you need to provide a proof of you know this ownership of money or the origin of its money every day there has been so and post april 1st april i mean the banks of india are just going on the route of the us banks for every little service that you had for example you need to take out a slip to check your balance from an atm it's going to be 5 rupees you need to cash a check it's going to be 10 rupees for any additional service be the internet or mobile every little thing is going to get charged from this moment onwards which wasn't the scenario till 31st march 2017 and very soon i think uh, it's just uh, uh, people just mix uh, india's stance as a socialist country it's not it's a highly capitalist countries and in i think all the agendas are very capitalist in nature i think it's just a fascist regime that they have packaged all of these bundles of offers into a socialist regime but it is not actually it is only going to create larger differences between the top 1 or 10% of the population of india and the bottom of the pyramid i uh, and with this forced banking the, the biggest the biggest loophole in this forced inclusion is that 
almost almost 66% of indians they live on a daily wage of less than 200 rupees now think about it a person who is only earning 6000 rupees per month and which is roughly around 120 dollars uh usds i mean what good is a bank for him or her i don't even i don't even understand that first of all he won't be able qualified to sign or to sign or for any kind of legal things that he might be required on the bank uh, banks processes now for the biggest challenge for this person is now the, his entire remuneration that's going to come into a bank account now he wouldn't know how to operate his debit card leave alone the fact about the credit cards of the world i mean the accessibility to your money has become a challenge right now in india and i think it's still not solved because as far as my as, and the second part of it is that people are really gullible over here i mean they just blindly believe the government if they said it's it's going to be sunrise during the sunset they would say yes that's how the modi regime has created all these uh, you know worshipers of the crowd and because of this herd mentality i think uh, that's that's how uh, there's been a systemic wealth erosion that is been happening from the people the, the the money that was being held see i have been a fan of microeconomics since my mba days and i know that there is there's a there's a concept of the shoe keep money so there is uh, the shoe keep money is actually uh, the price or the amount that you actually pay to take out the money from your atm itself from your home to the atm machine that's a shoe keep money macroeconomics now think about it you have no money in your pocket all your money is kept in banks the amount of salaries that you draw they are in banks i mean it's all under the banks that's why there has been a lot of liquidity that has gone into the banks and now the favorable lending rates but i think there is a bubble right now which is as far as i can see this is a short term scenario i give it i give it 4 years or 5 years but what after that for example is this system going to help them i'm not sure so if if you had a bank i I'm, I'm still i so so in this scenario where let's go back pre demonetization a banking crisis yeah. in india would have had significant consequences to the economy however okay. large portions of capital were should we call it saved in safe places non bank institutions or literally under the pillow the environment that you've got today is if you have a banking crisis your systemic risk is an order of magnitude higher than it's ever been before because right. nobody's got any savings under the pillow anymore they're all in the banking system so right. there's been a bailout if i'm going to summarize this essentially there's been a bailout of an indebted banking system and it's been bailed out by the people least um with the least ability to take on risk i think the, the the because look the the middle and upper class the 1% certainly um they don't didn't have an issue with respect to getting banking uh, facilities in india or even in any other country in the world um right. and so they can manage their risk in a much more efficient manner and as right. you would well know the 1% in india don't only bank in india right they're not that stupid <laughs> so sure they, they they understand the inherent risks of holding um a depreciating currency or a currency which has the ability to depreciate significantly right um they understand the risks in any banking sector and in india in particular that capital that has now been forced into the banking sector is uh doesn't have the intellect to understand the risks that they've taken so if we have any banking crisis in india then the repercussion yep. is going to be much more severe it's going to the question the question then i guess that i've got to ask is with because i can see this that, that you know a flood of capital into a banking sector um can be leveraged as that's what banks do right they'll loan out the capital and they'll loan it out at you know different um uh, leverage ratios but right. certainly so that can create a boom in the economy it can create more economic growth and so on and so forth um the traditional banking sector is one which is structured so that it it 
there isn't the ability for people of low incomes to actually participate in that society just because of the cost. So for example, if you're on that 200 rupees a day and you're going to set up a bank account and um, you know, transact with it, your fees in terms of transaction are so such a great portion of your 200 rupees that it just makes it uneconomical to even utilize it. So the question is, with this India stack and Adhar and all the applications which are currently being built, do you see that cost variable declining to a point where it is economic for that average, for, for that low-income Indian to be able to utilize the service um, on an economic basis? See, I think largely uh, what uh, the people under this segment are going to feel the heat, which is exactly the same thing which you mentioned. So this will create a room for a lending economy, wherein all these people, for example, if this person or was earning say like six to eight thousand rupees a month now he would now he would need access to credit to maintain another cycle of it because he would be hurt by the triggers from banking economy itself or maybe the small payments that he's required in his day-to-day lives that this is paving way for a lending economy which is again a forced way of banking inclusion right now people aren't uh, this is my forecast because i can feel the same thing which is happening right now and uh, in, 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 in addition to this, that, you know, we have now a very strong capital controls in alternate assets. For example, uh, three months before from now, uh, I just went on to purchase some gold. And uh, if you are buying gold uh, worth more than rupees two lakhs, then you need to provide uh, your identity card, your, uh, you know, banking ID card and all those. If you are paying identity uh, uh, documents have to be provided over there at the time of purchase. Now, even if you were to sell that amount of gold back to the reseller, you would need to furnish all those details. Apparently, in an in an Indian system, for example, India was largely known uh, historically as the golden bird of the world, uh, and uh, now now it's become to discuss gold and money all of a sudden in society. It's it's it's. The, the strong concept has become evil itself. If you're holding wealth, it has become evil. No, it should be parked with someone else. So, I mean, there's a systemic, uh, you know, uh, attitudinal shift that's happening right now, which the government is forcing because of this banking inclusion. And it's paving way for a credit society, just like what happened 20 years or 25 years earlier in the US, where you had good access to credit. But at this point of time, for example, Think about all the India is one of those India is one of those countries where almost 65% is youth right now. Now these are the these are the people who are going to pass from school and go, go into college. Think about the amount of debts that they will have, just like in US, what we are observing right now, huge last student loans which are piled up and large amount of bubbles that's about to go up. So I think within eight or nine years down the line, we are going to be mirroring what happened in the US just 15 or 20 years earlier that it's a huge lending economy. People have borrowed money from banks because there was no other way to uh, you know, store wealth or maybe there was no other asset which could be proved to be as a wealth creation uh, tool. So I think that's the, that's the scenario as per me. In terms of the, your world of Bitcoin and that, do you see a utilization amongst India and whether, whether it be you know, middle class, upper middle class, I'm not sure, is there is there an understanding or a growing understanding of the risks that you're talking about and a movement towards securing wealth in some shape? Because, you know, you mentioned the fact, and we all know this, India has always been the hub for gold, right? People have stored and held their wealth in gold because you look at history and, you know, even, um, your, two, even your guy is earning 200 rupees a day. He's probably going to think, okay, I'm going to put, if I can, I put some of this into um, a gold necklace or whatever it is for my wife and, and, and we'll store some wealth in that fashion because the rupee over time is going to devalue. So that's kind of a, almost like it's cultural and it's economic and it's been there for a long time. Is there any move towards using Bitcoin in a similar fashion um, in, that you've seen or is it... From, I think from an awareness level, a uh, lot of, so I'm talking about somebody who's earning decently, having a decent life and knows English, has a good job. Almost 90% of them are aware of Bitcoins. But yeah. the sad they part of it, you're saying that 90%, okay. 
yeah because there is a almost on every every third day in newspapers in the economics and business section of it there is some section which is devoted to either cryptocurrency or bitcoin even though it's largely written from a very negative associated uh, fashion that you know this is what tumbled down it is not safe uh, which i think is again a propaganda from the fixed uh, you know uh, you know all the mutual fund entities and all the finance entities of the world yeah. uh, they still don't they still don't trust bitcoin at all apparently it's the other way around see india has largely been used to understand that for almost 500 to 700 years uh, we were under slavery and after that when the british has left uh, it was pretty much the people could maneuver whatever we were told to unless and until you got really educated developed an intellect to counter question or counter develop whatever things are happening Go for go asking for a loan. Uh, you would still uh, go over there and at some point of time plead to these bank managers over there to grant you some loan. But just because you have to start up a new business, or you maybe have to purchase a new property or purchase a new home. So largely, if you were to say they, in some fashion, banks have this. Uh, banks banks have an upper hand on society right now in terms of you know we are the large. we are large entities and you can't mess with us as so is the government interesting of that that government for example in this demonetization fiasco a lot of uh, uh, a lot of money from back door was pushed into the system um, uh, by these people who had stored large amount of wealth and they had stored it and now this currency is it's, it's illegal to store them and they just converted into white so there was a lot of, there a lot of people who were caught but no action has been taken till them for example it's an estimated that almost 1.3 million 1.3 billion rupees were somehow illegally maneuvered into these banks so that it would be churned into a new amount of uh, currency and all these people were big traders or so to speak from delhi in around which a couple of them i personally know that they they called up someone who knew someone and they stashed a lot of money with him and after a week then he just took a 20% cut and just gave them a new new bill which was a 2000 rupee bill so i think uh, there is practically even if you go right now online and check about any banks that were taken off to court there is no history i i would suggest i would say that at least in european and western economies uh, people could actually take a bank if they did something wrong to a court let alone be the fact that leaving a uh, leaving aside that if they were guilty or not but think about there is practically nothing you can't this the government itself the government is too powerful that people feel too miser or maybe too i would say to they're not empowered enough to take the banks against them so first of all now you have bitcoin they don't get what bitcoin is except the fact that it's a quick reach scheme which in india apparently uh, the indian exchanges have propagated the same for example the top four indian exchanges unocoin zepay uh, and there's one more i think uh, coin secure all of these has largely been promoting bitcoin as an investment to be much like a systematic investment plan so keep on investing 500000 rupees per month with us and uh, apparently they have become too rowdy also all of a sudden because now there is cartelization of exchanges they have formed a separate entity of their own which is known as digital assets and blockchain foundation of india and apparently they have sided with the government in making their own room of existence in the economy and thereby restricting any new player to come in for example they directly liaised with the uh, finance minister of india so that they could at least uh, be to these all two or three exchanges they can be here for longer period of time and they are one cent for all for everything that can be blockchain or maybe bitcoin in india uh, this can be taken into account because quite recently if you were to purchase a bitcoin apparently these guys are now introducing a markup which is a transaction fee built on a value added tax built on the convenience fee plus the bitcoin fee so there are four kind of fees when you purchase a bitcoin from there but why okay so i mean look i think that's probably just part of an evolution of of a new technology as well because ultimately you can fool some of those people for a period of time but you realize you, there is arbitrage opportunity in that you and i could go and set up a business where we don't need to charge those fees 
right? Because at the end of the day, they're just they're they're not providing any value. Anybody can go onto blockchain, set up a, a wallet, and just you know start transacting. So they're not actually providing any real value to the client, and as such, charging for a value that they're not providing, ultimately, the economy the, 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 that'll be arbitraged away. So. I mean, I kind of, I would come down on the side saying that they're going to make money for a little while because they're fooling people, yeah. but yeah. Their, their business model is unsustainable. Um, how long they sustain it for, we can debate, but the point is that it's unsustainable in the long run. And even from a legal legal standpoint, uh, I've been quite uh, quietly following. So uh, just in uh, just a couple of months back in May, the Minister of Ministry of Finance had opened up a room on their website to invite opinions on the regulation of cryptocurrencies. And it saw almost almost 3,100 entries over there from the citizens of India. Now, I don't know about the quality of entries that went in. But after that, there was a discussion held in uh, the, the closed chambers of the parliament. And recently, at the end of July, the finance minister said that uh, even though there is no regulation at this point of time, uh, to participate in cryptocurrency is uh, is not advisable by the central bank. And any business that is doing uh, uh, that is transacting in cryptocurrency, the largely bitcoins, is not licensed by the RBI. And because you are not licensed by the RBI, you are open to actions. But those actions at this point of time are not framed honestly at this point of time. So one fine day, they might just pull out section A from chapter B or C and just apply on to you if they were to see. And yes, they have said that uh, it is largely, the, the cryptocurrencies are largely to, used for by money launderers and the traditional story that every government does. They are not pro-Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. Now, while the government says this, on the other side, three top three of the top Indian banks are working on a blockchain which is enabled by Ripple. So again, we might go into the questioning scenario that uh, well, Ripple is not decentralized or immutable or inflation resistant. Those are another topics for separate uh, separate discussion. And one of the one of the first states in India, Andhra Pradesh, uh, uh, towards towards uh, the the, the eastern and the central part, Andhra Pradesh, is the first state in India to declare that it will have most of its public documents on blockchain. So that's one of the most uh, aggressive states in terms of blockchain. While uh, the applications of blockchain are still to be see, largely they are uh, the blockchain evolution right now in India is to be seen from a B two B environment. It is still yet to go to a B two C environment where an individual consumer is then beneficiary uh, but I think that's going to take some time but from a Bitcoin perspective uh, all the proponents who became the faces of Bitcoin in India largely because either they were having shady mining pools cloud pools some became on their own Bitcoin entrepreneurs put their money behind and put their faces on the media uh, most of them are running Ponzi schemes they're taking they're taking money from people, arranging in some fashion, promising them something which an Amway or a Neutralite did earlier, 20 years from now. And uh, from the from the from the perspective of let's just say the bottom 90% of the people who were to be included in the Bitcoin economy in society right now, who apparently are hinging on these Ponzi schemes. And every month, I kid you not, every month there is an article in the newspaper. That, for example, one coin. This was the largest pyramid scheme right now in India. One coin was apparently run by a lady called Rashmi. And just day before yesterday, there is a warrant of her regarding her arrest in India that she fooled a lot of people, among thousands of them, that this was going to be a cryptocurrency, which is which will give them impeccable results of result uh, ROIs on this figure or this figure. So, I mean, from a even from a societal impact perspective, uh, the people who have been trying to um, rightly educate people about Bitcoin are hardly outnumbered by these people because, again, it's a quick rich scheme. And and in India, uh, it, from a cultural insight point of view, 
Indians are really lazy with their money. They are really careless with their money. The the good thing about them is they would want you to keep their money with you because apparently it's a culture of trust over here. That if you talk to me sweetly, just out of you know, most of my neighbors, they know what I'm doing. I know what the kids are doing, and it's a, it's a kind of society that everyone knows mostly everyone in a small town. So it's largely a relationship of trust. Now what they want, if you had to take excess of money, all you need to do is talk sweetly to them. Throw a few English uh, jargons around them, and they'll be really impressed with what you are saying. And they would hand, and they would have, and they would in your hand give them monies. So traditionally, they don't want to be responsible in creating wealth via their own hands. It's good if it is created by some other hand, because then they'll applaud and shout and clap. But they don't want to do it on their own. And this is one of the biggest policies from a cultural point of view that they are not responsible for their money. Because largely, if you see the education system has been broken, that it's, it's that they are not it, the free thinking kind of an environment has never been there in India, uh, except the period when there was Osho and around. Let's just leave that, leave it at that. But uh, people really don't see wealth creation. I think they're still stuck to. And another point, they want assurance and hundred percent safety in all their investments. I mean, this is totally atypical of any investment scenario. They would not want to lose out on anything. While they would still accept that this is gambling, but I don't want to lose money on the gamble. So they would take or all the safer instruments in the world. For example, fixed deposits. For example, right now in India, even if you keep money in your savings bank account, it gives you seven percent per annum. And if you were to keep in a fixed deposit, it would give you nine percent to ten percent per annum, depending on the age or the uh, you know male or female sex that you are. And in certain kind of instruments such as gold, which can be kept and withheld safely with me, because I can see it's very spark. So I think the traditional approach to money has been. I mean, we were the people who invented zero. Think about Aryabhatta, <laughs> and now we are reduced to people that we don't we don't care with our money because I think fundamentally what has happened is that uh, because the environment of India is such. it is so tedious right now that everyone is working so hard to earn their bread and butter everyone working so hard to get their emi is done for their kids education or maybe the loans that they have taken for their house that they have somehow forgotten to see the larger picture of the money because it's and the worst part about thing is that indian culture money is not spoken freely and openly for example right now if i were to talk to my mother or father they would they have never told me they've never discussed money with me in the last 30 years at home it was largely okay if you need some money i'll give you some but let's that's there let's not talk about it now 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 because of me going into and getting educated about all this stuff and i would ask my dad what have you thought about your retirement plan and he would still have no answers because it's never, the society or none of the people in the family never asked them this question and whenever they thought and this question is unreal how could they even ask me right now this question right so it's a moment of awe and 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 sometimes if people are people are not obliged to answer and if they are obliged to answer they feel shamed discussing about money because uh, they don't want to be seen that i have less and you have more of it and that just that just shakes the status quo of uh, us in the society as well or uh, in our family as well that's why they don't talk about money openly So I think that these are the challenges that we have at this point of time. While Bitcoin has this power to be the risk, you know, the Messiah to take these people, but I think uh, and uh, the first thing that people I I recently did a boot camp with a lot of uh, young professionals uh, on an av- the average age group was 30 to 35. Everybody had an MBA with them. Some were working in advertising media. Some were working in banking. Some were working in the financial space. i could you not everyone said i will opt for bitcoin when the government says it is approved i mean if this is if this is the fundamental thinking of the educated masses of india i don't know what lightning or thunder is required uh, to stri- to strike upon their heads to make them understand that this is not this is not just the currency aspect of it there there are many more there are much more aspects to it so i think it's a very long shot till people get cheated people get bribed people get you know hassled around it until and unless they fall into its place and this will take some time so 
you bring up some really good points there. Um, you've actually, I mean, if you were to underline it as one thing, it's education and you've got an education problem. Um, if you've got a society that's unwilling to be educated or is, um, uh, it sees a discussion topic as a perversion, um, it's very, very difficult to break that. Um, I mean, if you think about it, and you, and you mentioned this before, where you can't discuss any topic. Um, discussion is, is essentially being the lifeblood of innovation. Um, you know, you go back to um, Chinese tea houses, right, in what was the 18th century, and that was an, the innovation came out of that ability to just sit down and discuss things openly about any topic. Um, <clears throat> that was, if you go back to... Um, uh, Europe and how um, the Reformation and all that took place, it was an ability to discuss things that had not previously been discussed. Um, freedom, freedom of speech and, and an ability to question things and, um, and investigate them. And so since you've got a society which is still controlled, it's still looking for a superior to tell you it's okay to discuss something. Um, so at an individual level, you know, you sit down, like you say, with your family for dinner and you can't talk about money, um, that's, that's, you know, it just stops before it's even gotten started. Um, and Absolutely. That's really difficult. So um, that's, I'm not sure that you, I'm not sure that Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, is a solution, but it's, if you've got a solution in front of you that you can't see, then it's, it's worthless to you. It's not going to be, I mean, I've, I've seen this many times before. Um, people will be in the room, right, in a particular deal. And they're sitting there and they're getting all of the information that the guy next to them is getting. And they come out of the room and they go, oh, that was exciting. But they have no idea how to implement it. And the guy next to them has got the intellect to go to figure out the pieces and to go out and build a business or get involved in that transaction in some way, shape or form and become a multimillionaire. And the, the other guy is sitting there going, but I was in the room. It's not fair. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you were in the room, if you didn't have the intellect to be able to, pro, to, to process that information and turn it into value for yourself. And so you kind of got this entire society that they're in the room. I mean, it's called the internet. Everybody can go and they can search up and they can investigate and they can educate themselves about this stuff, but they don't have the intellect to be able to turn that into anything executable for themselves. And they're, they're constrained by this inability to do so because they're looking for a higher authority that'll allow them to do that. Right. Um, I mean, if I, if I was going to point a finger, it's a little bit like, um, you know, uh, our religion has operated in the world. And, you, you know, you've got um, when uh, when the Crusades were taking place, um, you know, uh, and you look at, you know, people wouldn't eat fish on a Sunday and they wouldn't, it would, all, the, all these various constraints on that society, they would sit there and they'd say, oh, only if the bishops say that I can eat fish on a Sunday well, they need fish on a Sunday sort of thing. So they're always looking for somebody to, a father figure to say, yes, it's okay to do X, Y, Z. Um, and when you're waiting for that, then you don't question things. You don't investigate them. Um, and that sounds like it's a, look, I think that's not necessarily purely an Indian problem. Um, it's probably more prevalent in India than in some other societies, but it is a global problem essentially. Um, in that people, for whatever reason, always look for an authority figure that'll say, it's okay to do this, and yes, you should proceed. Um, and that's that's a centralization, right? And, and everything that we're looking at in the world today is actually that's moving towards a decentralization. I've been making this argument on the blog for many, many months or even years now. Um, nation states are becoming more decentralized. We're getting smaller right. countries. Um, businesses are becoming more decentralized. Employment contracts are much more decentralized. That concept of employment for life um, is 
it's magical thinking almost at this point in time. You know, um, none of us in our, um, I guess, under the age of 45, 50 even, actually believes that right, anymore um, because the world's showing us that that's just not going to take place. Um, and certainly the 20, 30-year-olds out there today that are looking at the world in front of them, um, I think they realize now that the concept of a job for life is, um, you know, that's just not going to take place. So, um, you know, I think that there's, there's, a, there's a force of nature which is taking place regardless. Um, how people take that up is, is where that friction point comes. And I think at the intersect of all of that is, um, you know, transfer of wealth, um, exchange of ideas and value. And that's where Bitcoin sits. Um, and if you get into, for example, ICOs, which you essentially you alluded to with the, some lady in India who obviously used some, you know, Ponzi scheme in order to try and extract value. That whole space is fraught with fraud at the moment. Um, and certainly, a, you know, there, there's an explosion of, um, I would, I hesitate to say value. There's an explosion of interest and an explosion of capital in that space. Um, right. and the underlying technology is robust and it can be used for good. Um, but the problem right now is that the amount of people that want, there's a greatest, there's a greater demand or a greater amount of people that have an interest in getting involved, um, while having a massively deficient understanding of the underlying principles. So in that respect, it's not, un it's not unlike the stock market and everybody looking at stocks going up saying, I want to, I want to participate, but they're not prepared to sit down and figure out what a PE ratio is or look at a balance sheet. They go, Oh, I don't know. I can't read a balance sheet. Well, if you can't read a balance sheet, you probably shouldn't be putting your money into anything. you don't know. <laughs> So, so a, I think it's a similar dynamic and, and that'll, it's going to play out probably the same way it always plays out. Um, no. the bigger question is we, what does this look as a long, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years time frame? Um, and you know, my thought is that it is going to fundamentally change society. It's going to fundamentally change the way that we go about doing business. It's, um, I mean, you've brought up a lot of really interesting points around Indian society and what's taking place there on the, at the ground level. And I guess if I was going to summarize it, it's that without education, um, people are going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. That's correct. And, and you must understand that we are one of those are, are spent in terms of GDP to education among all, all the things is the lowest in India. It's merely 1.6% of the entire GDP. I mean, I can't even get almost 10% of the Indians get quality education in that. So we can understand it's a vicious cycle that will keep on continuing for the next hundred years or so. That that's the traditional theory of survival of the fittest. Yeah. As the cost of access to information continues to plummet, that gives you hope for the ability for people that would never have who have been excluded from an education um, as a as a result of um, cost now would have the ability to actually educate themselves and I, I you know I remember um, it was in I'm trying to think now it might have been 2004 or 2005 um, my wife and I were traveling through India um, in fact I could pinpoint the actual date because it was right at the time when there was a big blow up between India and Pakistan and whether they were going to start firing nukes in the, up in Kashmir at each other so I can't remember exactly what that year was but nevertheless we went up there um, and that was, well, firstly, things were very cheap because no tourists wanted to go there because they thought they were all going to get nuked. But I remember speaking to a rice farmer up there and um, this was at the time when you have what, had um, WAP phones, WAP, right? Remember, it's like the smartphone didn't exist yet, um, at least not right. on a large scale. And right. these guys would, Farmers would um, farm their rice and then traders would come up from New Delhi, buy the rice from them, take it back to New Delhi and then sell it in the, in the open market over there. And the farmers 
didn't know what the pricing in, in, in New Delhi was, or by the time they knew what the pricing was, the transaction had taken place because they would need to, you know, literally have somebody go to New Delhi, find out the price, and then come back. And so, like, these guys had literally in their village, they had one cell phone. And they used to use, they used to, there was like a central point where the guy would now check the prices in New Delhi of rice. And so when the trader came up and said, hey, I want to buy your, your rice at so many um, rupees or whatever, he was like, no, 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 no. I know what the price is. So that, that, that one piece of technology had allowed those, those farmers to actually come together, almost form like a cartel and go, no, 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 look, guys, we know what the price is. We're going to bargain on our, on our own behalf so that we get a better price for all of us. And they were. And now you had this saving. So your middleman was no longer bringing, because look, he never brought that much value anyway, right? He was just an arbitrager. And, and the, uh, the access to information allowed that arbitrage value to close much, much more significantly than it had previously before, just because of a cell phone. So that's education. That's literally just education. Those guys now had an education around what the spot price of rice in New Delhi was. And of course, today, while your average villager might not have a smartphone, you probably have a, a laptop in a village, right? Yeah. At least one. Or a, or a smartphone or a computer of some nature. So I think as, as time progresses, you know, that is the one thing that could, uh, could bring about um, an ability for the average person to have much more power than they've ever had before because they've got, they can make decisions based on, on what's actually taking place out there. And if you go back to some of the fundamental changes which have taken place in history, the Berlin Wall being one of them, what... There's an argument made that the Berlin Wall essentially fell as a consequence of the fax machine because the information could now be transferred behind the wall. Like there was no barrier as a consequence of the technology. So fine, you could stop people moving physical letters across the wall, but when the guy on the other side has got a fax machine and he can get fax information, suddenly the spread of information can be, you know, can be used and so yeah. um, the ignorance level can be, you know, evaporated as a consequence of technology. So I guess that's that's you know that's a that's a hope that we could have. Um, but how how long it takes for that to take place, and um, yeah. and then you've got that cultural side of things where, as so long as people trust in in almost magical thinking. Right, which is trusting a government. That's trusting in magical thinking. I mean, it's like trusting in, in unicorns and yeah. Easter bunnies. Yeah. Because, yeah. but because if you go and you start studying history, you would look at it and you go, "Hey, anybody that trusts these people is either <laughs> on drugs or certifiably insane." There's, there's, there's no other. Those are the two options. Um, but if you haven't got that historical context and you haven't got that ability to look at at that information and question it, then you're never going to make that judgment call. You're just going to go, oh, well, we, you know, we're told to trust them, therefore we should trust them. Um, right. And again, that's just all, all comes down to information flow and the ability to um, to make decisions. Specifically, when Indians are very emotional, I mean, we are the biggest emotional fools in the world that we sometimes let our emotions run over our rational thinking and just we hand over our trust to the other person, whoever is feeling nice to us. <laughs> Mm, very dangerous very dangerous so um hey well um i really appreciate your time and um we've come up just over an hour so um yeah thanks a lot for all your insights and um best of luck with what you're doing let's keep in touch yeah i will thanks for it okay take care okay okay bye good day thanks very much for tuning in To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.